Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. You know, we know that sometimes the challenges in adopting greater soil health systems aren't always related to what's happening in the soil. So today we're looking forward to exploring some resources that are available to help because there are obstacles in the conventional ag space that could limit growers from switching to regenerative practices. You know, obstacles like access to capital, And to discuss those topics today, we welcome Dan Miller, founder and CEO of Steward. Steward is a private lender providing regenerative farmers, ranchers, fishermen, and producers the capital they need to expand and sustain their businesses. It's a great conversation, so let's jump right in. Welcome, everyone. I'm glad to be joined today by Dan Miller. Dan is with Stuart, a startup, and I'm going to have Dan just jump right in and tell his story. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation and doing a little backfilling of what's going on in the conventional ag space and just some limits that could limit us from switching to regenerative. So Dan's going to really, uh, it's going to be a great conversation and um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this next hour. So Dan, if you would tell us your story, introduce yourself. Absolutely. Uh, My name is Dan Miller. I'm the founder of Steward, which is a platform to provide financing to regenerative farmers, existing regenerative farmers or those transitioning over. Um, I I began to meet regenerative farmers and farmers, you know, farming different ways, diversified, sustainable human scale agriculture um, through a chef I knew in the mid-Atlantic region. I grew up in Washington, D.C. My mom's family was farming in the Chesapeake Bay. And through uh, meeting of those farms, you know, people love their products. People are excited about what they're growing. People are excited about the story of supporting this type of agriculture. But the availability to financing was unchanged. You know, there was there are very few options. They're mainly focused on large commodity agriculture. And the second year, switching out of that system to more diversified direct sale, value added products, just out of the traditional commodity system, the financing system uh, had changed and wasn't available. And so the goal of Steward is how do you bring capital to these types of businesses, agricultural businesses that are doing things differently, that have a lot of market demand, but obviously are, are uh, not as well known and the whole kind of government system isn't behind them. How do you take them and provide the capital they need? And that's through an online platform where we provide the financing by letting individuals through our platform uh, aggregate money and uh, make it as loans through the steward business. So the goal is how do you bring a new audience of funders into regenerative agriculture to change uh, the opportunity and bring the type of capital that's really needed to transition and change uh, the agricultural system. How I ended up you know, in this type of work, my, I grew up in, in Washington, DC. My father was in commercial real estate development. So I learned that kind of property and development and, and all of that business uh, through that. My mother's family was from the Eastern shore of Maryland. They were poultry farmers, you know, traditional uh, family farm that get consolidated away in the uh, world of conventional ag. And so those were the two poles I had. And pr- right after uh, uh, university, the first business I had was doing urban development in Washington, DC, restoring historic properties. And through that, I was frustrated with the types of investors out there, the traditional projects they wanted, them not being familiar with, you know, non-traditional things. And so we built an online platform to raise money from local residents to fund these development projects uh, with us. And that was the creation of Fundrise, which was spun out as a separate business. It was the first real estate crowdfunding platform in the US. Um, it went from raising $300,000 in the first three months of the first project to now over $100 million a month, 300,000 investors. And so through that experience, I learned how to build these online systems to raise alternative money for non-traditional projects. And, and then came the introduction to regenerative farmers through the chef and reading Wendell Berry and really being interested in how do you, how do I support the Chesapeake Bay watershed and where my mother's family's from by introducing more alternative agricultural practices because there it's corn, soy, broiler, chickens. And so that led me down to creating steward of how can I use my resources and how can I provide a platform that lets others 
provide the much needed funding that's needed in this type of agriculture. And, and that's the reality. Access to capital is a huge issue across the board. There a lot more capital needs to be available to these types of producers. And our goal is to be an alternative provider that has a unique uh, way of raising money and really telling the story of the farmer and giving them financing that that's fair and fits them well. Well, I think it's interesting, the the area that you grew up in being the Chesapeake Bay, I think it's probably one of the most well-known, um, you know, stories from turning a, a huge problem with the, the watershed and the water quality into actually a very success story because of agriculture. So many, many years ago, there was excessive runoff, excessive fluent, because there is a lot of poultry in that area. There's also a lot of uh, hog confinement and such, and uh, farmers and resource managers and in government, everybody got together. And, and now, in uh, fast forward 40 years later, uh, cover crops are 80, 90% planted in that Chesapeake um, uh, Bay watershed. And it's it's made a big difference. So you've, you've probably seen that in your lifetime there personally, correct? Yeah, the, so the, e the ecosystem was you know really deteriorated, um, and then it hit a nadir, and then it's it's starting to restore, um, but it's still at you know 0.3% of its native oyster population. So there there's still a whole level of restoration needed. So that's what I'm interested in doing. How do how do I further agricultural practices at a watershed level to encourage you know better ecological outcomes, but also creating markets and products for these farmers. I'm actually personally, aside from my work at Steward, working on an oyster farm near my parents live in Easton, Maryland, for the same reason of just that's the most tangible thing I can do in that area, in that location to improve that that watershed. So even though the water itself has been cleaned up, the the keystone or the benchmark you're looking for is the oyster population, and it's still only at 0.3%. Yeah. I was unaware of that. So yeah, and the, grass, the go, grasses right? haven't restored. The grasses haven't, restored. you know, and so you realize, you know, yeah. that you need the grasses, you need, you need all the elements of a diversified ecosystem. And so once you understand agriculture is integrating elements of an ecosystem and building the crops around that, it's just a different way of, of thinking about agriculture. And so most of the producers we work with that we're funding are, are just obsessed and excited about uh, farming this way and doing things differently. And that's their passion and that's their vision. And we just give them more resources help them tell their story and help raise the capital they need to do it because in agriculture you you know you need capital at some point you can start scrappy but at some point you need financing and investment to really get it to to a scale where it can sustain itself so i just got to ask on a side note if you're a crop farmer you know you talk about getting your hands dirty right now, now if you're an oyster farmer are you getting what what you getting your your boots wet or your hands wet or what what's what's the saying for hard <laughs> your shins your shins destroyed against oh, uh dragging all up from... i know but you, you don't you don't have the hand wenches like they had in the late 1800s you know the yeah. wind lasts so uh, i was reading about the, the history of the oyster farm in the late 1800s and that was really when the initial depletion of the the oyster population happened so it's it's not a immediate thing but it relates to the industrialization process around harvesting and practices so you know, you, you see that that common thread in a lot of the resource management in the U.S. And now it's about how do you how do you actually uh, improve the resources and the kind of ecological base and have that lead to better agricultural outcomes. And um, I think it's the only way it can be done. And that's all we focus on, whether that people are converting or uh, died in the wool, the regenerative farmers. It's just getting the resources to do it. So centralization and commoditization of our food has has done a lot of things over history, right? And it's been pretty consistently not good. So, you know, one of the things that regenerative farming is trying to bring uh, food back closer to the population, right? Instead of being centralized, trying to decentralize it and really trying to almost decommoditize it, make it more choices and more options and and those kind of things. So if I'm understanding it right for, for the layman here and, and, and other people that are listening, I'm, I'm a, uh, so I'm, I'm a partner with Kiva. Okay. So that's where we're doing micro loans to, you know, basically third world countries to support things uh, going on. And that's really as a nonprofit kind of thing. So it seems to me um, you're kind of one part uh, Kiva type model, but you're also one part impact fund. So it's uh, like where investors going together, looking for a large return uh, but also trying to make a, a interesting impact. So I think you're, but what is the, what is the goal? Why do people supply money uh, to, to steward and what do they hope to gain back from it other than the impact that they're making? 
And, and Kiva is a good starting point because that's how a lot of people learned about microfinance and small contributions and small loans. So that built a lot of the theory. And here it's about using the same broad-based online distribution and word of mouth, and but allowing having people actually lend money with, with a return. So the interest rate, you know, we lend to a farm is 6%. You as a lender on our platform buy a piece of that loan, a pro rata slice, and you earn the interest in principle that's repaid. So they're basically joining the loan syndicate that we're putting together. So I do think to have a viable capital market in regenerative agriculture, there does have to be some return. You know, if, you, if people are going to put their money out, only so many people are going to do loans at 1%. In reality, the amount of capital that's needed has to be balanced. And so part of the process of we're developing is a true, you know, private capital market outside the government subsidized system, which is so convoluted, it's even hard to figure out how, what's going on. We're here, it's individuals, providing loan capital to farmers that really need that capital with the capital structured as they need it, with deferment periods, with interest only periods if needed, because it's custom designed for that user. And so I think that's the funders are looking to support regenerative agriculture in a very direct, tangible way. And so they can finance this specific farm at this location with these improvements that are going to make this purpose, or they can fund a diversified product on our platform where they'll earn you know, a, a yield spread across multiple projects. But I, I do think it's the, the tangibility and engagement of people want it, uh, what, a lot of people who want to see regenerative agriculture grow, if they could put their resources towards that growth directly, then that's how the movement can get to the to the scale it needs. Everybody knows regenerative agriculture is under cap, undercapitalized. It's, it's effectively cut out of the government, you know, financing system and the gov government controls the ag financing system. And so they define the market. And if you don't fit the market that they define, you're on your own. Well, I just to dive into the funders a little bit, then we definitely want to go into the farmers, right? Uh, and, and and that whole discussion, uh, I we could have I could have a long rant about that. <laughs> uh, anyway, we uh, on the funder side then. So, you know, a person who contributes money, uh, you know, I imagine there's some sort of maybe there's a minimum or maybe max hundred dollar minimum, hundred dollar minimum, and uh, probably no maximum. Um, unless yeah, people uh, who are putting in hundreds status. of thousands and people yeah. putting in hundreds of dollars of the same term side by side, I see. you know, equal footing. So then they can, uh, they can do it kind of like approaching the stock market. They can go out and pick individual stocks as far as individual farms or individual projects. Right. Or are you saying you, you have like a mutual fund type of thing where, where you pool their money to, uh, we want to do urban agriculture development, or we want to do. Uh, regenerative cattle grazing or, or something, a topical yeah, type there, of thing or yeah, a so geographical kind of thing? There's two core products. So they're, they're credit products, so they're loan products. So people are lending capital, earning an interest rate return of principal. The mm -hmm. first is we call a participated loan where you're lending to an individual farm. Mm -hmm. You know, we just financed a farm in the Salmon Islands in Washington state. Mm -hmm. They just purchased the land. You're buying a piece of that loan. You'll earn 6% interest paid over time. So we effectively have a lending entity that makes a loan. You buy a pro rata, you know, proportionate piece of that loan and you receive the interest in principle directly tied to the success of that borrower, you know, at interest rates from let's say five to, to 8%. The other product you're lending uh, to a, a vehicle that has a portfolio of many different loans. Mm -hmm. And so your, your collateral and the underlying uh, return that's generated by that, by that loan is across at this point, I think that that vehicle has 20, 30 different projects. Okay. Um, so in reality, it's some people want to diversify that uh, the, the diversified product is a shorter term liquidity. So just a few months, people withdraw the money, they earn four to 5% interest payments paid monthly. That can be something where they can diversify capital and don't have to specifically think about diligence on each deal. But we do find our most popular product in terms of selling out quickly are the individual farm campaigns because people are excited about the story. They're motivated to support that farm in that region, or are they interested in their livestock practices or they have a connection to it. And so most of those loans, like any loan under 500 K we've been doing over the past few months is selling out within a day and wow. any loan under 200,000 in minutes. And so we have users that, you know, queue up and are interested in supporting them. So I've been blown away by the capital demand, but if you really want to put money towards growing regenerative agriculture in a tangible way, there aren't many options to do it. And this is accessible to a, a broad base, not just limited to the institutional, you know, right. large scale investor. And, and a lot of the options have been just simply maybe donations to groups that are educating or promoting or, or those kind of things. It hasn't been that direct to, you know, how do you connect with a farmer? So 
that's that's a that's a really great thing. That's amazing that sellout rate, you know, half a million dollars in a day. So are a lot of the projects then capital-based projects uh, for like real estate or or equipment, or is some of it operating notes and and uh, those kind of unse more unsecured type? Yeah, projects? we have diverse um, different products. You know, we we do mortgage loans, we do equipment loans. They're all you know secured loans with the overall business, and and we can adjust between the different collateral property, personal property. Um, most of the loans we're looking for are funding a mix of operational growth and capital investment. So maybe funding land, maybe funding equipment, fencing, irrigation, uh, something that's going to grow the productivity of the farm and the operation. And then also alongside that, making sure there's enough capital for labor and marketing and operational costs. And all of those need to be blended together. So we don't specifically divide it up and say, your farm's actually like this, 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 there's three separate things, either financed totally separately, it's just one group. And I think that is simple, simple for a farmer as well, that, that it's all... Um, all of those can be blended together. We've done some seasonal input financing this year with a, a farm converting to regenerative that was already halfway there. And we're working with the technical assistance provider to provide the financing for the regenerative inputs because the second they went off chemical inputs, the lenders, you know, are not interested in it. So interesting to learn on the finance side how control market controls happen. And so the, our view is if, if a farmer is regenerative or committed to regenerative, we can work with them to put together the financing they need in the immediate term and long term. And we have a team member who's a farmer himself who uh, founded and ran a farm incubator in North Carolina. And he works with the farmers, not only just to um, understand their capacity as a farmer, but also help refine their plan around what, what do they really need funding for? What's actually going to drive revenue growth, reduce expenses? What, what business line should they focus on? And I think a lot of the customers we have, they come to us with so many needs because they've never been able to get any financing and you just want to figure out what do we do this year? You know, what do we do next year and how do we step by step, get your business to, to the place you're looking to be. Right. So tell us about your team. You mentioned you have a, a person who's has the farming experience and, and can uh, really relate. Is this a realistic plan and, and maybe offer advice and those kind of things, but you have to have quite a team for this to work. I imagine there's different laws in different States and wow, this is a lot to accomplish. Correct. Right we're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. It's a lot. I mean, that's why I, I, I had built a similar business, a different business with Fundrise and real estate crowdfunding. So I, I'd already spent almost 10 years learning the, the all these elements. And now it's in a new sector, which is yep. much more different than I thought, commercial real estate to, to alternative agriculture. Yep. So, you know, ultimately it takes a very broad set of capacities. That's the challenge with Steward. You have you know, originating deals, underwriting deals, servicing deals, all the loan making activity, you have legal and compliance, you then have the distribution of those deals through an online platform. So we have in-house technology, design, engineering, you have, you know, accounting finance, you have operational people that oversee all of that, you have product on top of that. And then you have the agricultural specialty. So it's it 14 team members currently spread, you know, wide across across the team. A lot, most of the staff is on the originating, underwriting, servicing, the, the actual like interacting with farmers and putting the projects together and overseeing them. And then supporting that is the operational and technology and, and marketing teams. Our, our whole team's remote. So we've got people all across the country, you know, Pacific Northwest, North Carolina, just had a team member move to Hawaii. I would say they move more rural than rural once they realize they can live wherever they want. So a part of the goal there was like, you're, you're in a broader network of communities. You understand the places you're trying to support and you're, you have people, you know, within all, all not just a, a tech startup in, you know, San Francisco. So I personally, I, I, I consider myself a, of sympathetic to the farmer side of my family's been farming since late 1800s. And I view it as I, I have the capacity to bring alternative financing to the sector. I've done it in another sector. I know how to do what are pretty wonky and complicated and technical things to be able to access a, a broad new market, which is, you know, the online market. And I think the, the regenerative farmer is a perfect fit for that 
the online financing product because people want to support it. People want to be participate in it. People are looking for tangible ways to see these improvements. It means a different thing to each person. Some people it's about job creation, rural development, climate, you know, opportunity, food access. It, it, it's almost doesn't matter. It unites so many people's different mm-hmm. interests. And, and I wanted a way to um, be able to do that myself. And, and then through stewards, I've been able to build a platform that more broadly people can participate in at a, at a small individual level or at a much uh, larger, you know, more engaged level. So it sounds like to me, um, finding people to participate on the funding level, it doesn't appear to be a problem at this moment on when you're when you're talking on how quickly the capital can be raised. But tell me, how are um, sounds like maybe you have a little bit of a demand problem. So what? How do you connect with more farmers? What? How do how do farmers learn about this? Um, how, how are you going about connecting with that community who may not know you exist or or know what those services are or know that it's a fit for them? Yeah, and it's and it's getting their attention. And so, you know, the thing about a two-sided marketplace is whatever you're fine with today is then the issue tomorrow. So, previously we we had tons of deals that it would take a few months to raise 100k, and now, you know, a deal that we spend lots of time putting together is gone in a day. And so you gotta you gotta move your your product through. The uh, a lot of our projects for farmers come through referrals. Where you know, so I think we're we're gonna build a formal referral program where. All of our users, anybody who's working with us can bring a farmer to us um, and see the benefit of, of what we can provide, but also, you know, bring people that they know fit because we, we do support a unique type of, of farmer. It's definitely not the traditional farmer. You know, we do online ads. We, we, we do some conference participation, but getting awareness among the agricultural community is critical. And I think it's done by proving ourselves and uh, until people see the reality of the the flexibility we have and the ability to really be an advocate for farmers and to bring other resources just beyond financing. Um, and then that's going to build over time. The, the capital side, we're, we're now doing larger deals. We're doing a handful of processing facilities because if you talk about regional food systems, you have to have regionalized processing. And that, you know, it, it doesn't take long to be in agriculture, particularly as ranchers to realize that there's a huge issue with processing and value add. And so there's a group in Montana we're working with to finance. Uh, we just financed the purchase of their site um, and they're going to do slaughter and value to processing and even a burger joint and so we're we're seeing a big demand in mid-tier value chain infrastructure and those deals tend to be three to five million some 10 million you know they're they're at least a few million to have enough scale for it to make sense and to be able to operate well it's also hard to operate those things but our view is if we're financing networks of regenerative producers they need market access and the current processing infrastructure is not built for them and so they're it's going to be new networks of more regionalized uh, infrastructure to get products to market, to do value-added products. And so we're at Steward, my view is that anything that is along the supply chain of tracing the, the product from grown in the land to its final sale are all things we'll consider financing as part of the same uh, system because they're all needed as components of a, of a, a successful food system. And uh, that that's a great point because when you're looking at the, the the huge, the big four meat processors, okay, and the big three ag chem companies, you know, there's so much consolidation on the on the big commodity side of things. You know, that's that's well taken care of. The mid-size is interesting because on the small scale, you know, typically people have an alternative income source, whether they're working a job or they maybe have a conventional farm with a bolt-on regenerative aspect or or those kind of things. They have that capital to kind of self-fund or friends, families, and fools to kind of get them going on the on the small end of things but that mid-size that's uh, a lot of that mid-size production where you can have you know anywhere from a dozen to 100 farmers funneling into one one type of thing and that that is a it's hard to get the money for because it's very hard a to lot get the of money, money. you know mm-hmm. it's a lot of money it's a lot of risk because you know you're starting a processor typically from scratch and it's like okay yeah give me 10 million dollars we'll make this work and <laughs> you know, labor and it's not red- it is just red flag for a traditional bank to do this. And they're like, are you, are you, okay. So you're not a, a vertical integrator and, and what? And so it, um, kudos to you. I mean, that, that's a, it, it's needed, but nobody's making it happen. It, and, and, and you, you know, the challenge as well, it's a lot of capital. So let's say 5 million all in with equipment, operating budget, everything, you know, realistically. And so where's that going to come from? Nobody has that kind of cash in their pocket. A bank doesn't even want to touch it because it's a network of small producers. There's no credit tenant. There's no reliable cash flow. The facility is not actually even meant to make money. It shouldn't. It should run at a break even and 
lower its cost of services or reinvest whatever it has. So it only makes sense from a lens of, of a regional food system of this is a service business to our other clients as farmers. And if they can plug into this, they'll have better margins, better access, better reliability. And so it is tricky, but there are a lot of programs. So we're providing the debt financing on it. And then we're working through a lot of other programs to bring capital to these deals. There's USDA grants out there. There's various economic development programs focused on rural development. And so we're weaving together a lot of the different financing to make okay. these projects a reality because it's a lot of capital, but the, the, there's people know it's needed and there has to be an alternative built. It's certainly something where the model isn't proven yet, you know, but in reality, I think you need a regionalized system owned by producer networks to, to have successful, viable, economically, you know, competitive uh, farm businesses. So that, that's what I've been most excited about. It actually marries a lot of what I did previously around commercial real estate development. In reality, building these facilities is commercial real estate development. The operations are then agricultural specific, and that requires labor. And there's certainly a need for more of that labor. But the actual building, the reality is these producers, you know, ranchers, like they don't know how to permit and develop a site and manage a general contractor. And so part of our offering on those deals has been the ancillary services of getting them connected to uh, a real estate developer who can execute the permitting and planning and helping them navigate some of these other things that are they're not um, they're not familiar with. You know, they don't know about uh, the reality of what it takes to get one of these facilities built and permitted. Right. And even getting the the regulation, the operation regulation in line with their HACCP plan and um, those kind of things. But I thought it was interesting how you said, uh, you know, navigating the maze of USDA grants. So, I mean, that's great, not only for, you know, the the farmer group, but it's also great for you. It helps to de-risk, you know, your funding because there is a tremendous amount of grants and, and educational and training and all those kind of things available out there for people to do it. It's just every time, like if you work with 20 of these, okay, you know what you're doing where every time yeah. somebody's starting fresh from scratch, it's how do I find this? So, I mean, that not only is the capital a great resource, but what you're bringing in that expertise and how to get it operational and, and how to get additional grant funding that's of a tremendous value too. Are our clients seeing that? Oh, a hundred percent. It's our, maybe one of our most popular products and we don't charge an upfront fee. It's just percent of, of what's gotten. So it's basically like, we're going to get the grant. We're not going to waste time on it if we don't think it's going to happen. So the way our services business, which includes a grant writing began is we were making loans to these farms and you realize, well, now they, they're capitalized, but they also need help with marketing or they need help with payroll and they need help with this and that. So we've slowly just kind of helped them with their operational needs. And through that have found they, a lot of them have very similar needs. And so grant writing was one of the first ones where there's clearly capital out there for these types of producers, value added producer grants from the USDA, reg, you know, a local food promotion program. There's, there's grants out there where, where people get hundreds of thousands of dollars, but you need matched capital to get those grants. And you need to write, you know, 80 pages of technical application and submit it through the government system, which takes a while to even get credentials for. And so you you really have to be a specialist. And so if we're a lender, it's producing our risk, it's bringing more capital to the deal, it's making this business also more likely to be successful because now they have equity that they otherwise didn't. And so weaving you know debt together with grants, with economic development programs and help private capital, I think that's the real solution. I think that's where, where we'll differ and the strength of our offering will be the comprehensive nature of it, that we can, from short-term bridge financing to you know, grant finance, grant writing to tax to tax credit programs. If we can all weave that together, the net result is more capital to producers at better prices, and they need all the help they can get. It's a very competitive market. It's not going to be easy to re-regionalize agriculture, and you're going to need every, every drop in basis, every reduction in cost, kind of every set of hands possible to make it work. So that's um um. How do I say this? Uh, you're, you're more than just a bank. <laughs> so I, I get a kick out of uh, there's there's a saying in farming that uh, a banker is more than willing to loan you money when you don't need it. So exactly. <laughs> I think, you know, you're addressing their needs. You're looking at uh, I mean, most of these things would be partner near impossible to do uh, unless you have some really deep pockets, you know, co-signing or, or part of the. Uh, funding and that's not everybody has that but by putting this crowd aspect to it you have that and I, I think that's that's interesting 
Um, you're bringing a new type of capital to it. And that, and that was the biggest change from where I was at commercial real estate before of, of broadening that and bringing new investors into it. But there's so much money in commercial real estate that there's 18 different types of capital you can go out to, hedge funds, private equity, individuals, local investors, banks, private lenders, hard money lenders, you know. And, and then I get to rege regenerative agriculture and you know, one out of 50 gets a USDA load, you know, a few get like Kiva loads and literally nothing. There's zero access to capital. And so it's not just credit they need, they need everything. And that's what we realized from the beginning. Hmm. Credit, I think, is the is core to the market until you have basic credit products, you know, the, uh, a capital market can't function. But on top of that, we need to also figure out where's the rest of the money going to come from. These operators don't have it. They're undercapitalized for a reason. And so how do we get them more? And and that's been our view from the beginning of we need to figure out what type of capital they need for them to be successful and for them not to run into the normal roadblocks of, you know, you need to put up 30% of the money. It's like, well, where they don't have $500,000, their, their network doesn't have $500,000. So where can we help find that from? Maybe you can bring 150 to the table and, and how can we find the rest? Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the farmer rat race um, that we're trapped in and may, people may not even know that they are trapped in it, to be honest with you. Um, commodity crops today are largely available for crop insurance. And when you, when you pay crop insurance premiums, you're guaranteed a certain percentage of uh, your previous yield history times whatever the market price is based on the marketing period on whatever commodity crop. So essentially, you can, you can purchase a revenue guarantee. And when you purchase that revenue guarantee, then the bank is lined up to be able to loan you the operating capital and is able to approve equipment purchases or, you know, or maybe the uh, equipment manufacturer approves those purchases and those kind of things. But those, those are how that works on the, uh, basically on the operating line, right? The, the annual loan needs and on some of the short-term equipment needs. But then the land and real estate is really kind of a little bit separate from there. So the crop insurance doesn't support that, but what it does support is a guarantee for high cash rents because you guarantee high farmers are really good at giving away all the money that they make to the landlord. So they, so they can farm more, right? Not make more money, but it's who has the most land at the coffee shop. That's the most important, right? So we've kind of the crop insurance and artificially inflates these land values to the point where now, if I want to go into regenerative farming and do produce that has no uh, commodity insurance program on it, or I want to do maybe grass-fed beef or whatever enterprise, or maybe I want to do long-term perennial cropping, um, I don't have that guarantee. Uh, the guarantees for the commodity crops have raised up the prices of the land that I have to choose from to do my regenerative farming practice. Uh, and then, like you said, no bank would touch you with a 10-foot pole. So just the nature of the protection system that's in place affects the financing system and which affects the land values, uh, which really excludes regenerative farming from happening. And what have I missed? Is that is that fair? And uh, what what are other elements I'm sure I've missed in there that you've that you've really thought about this, Dan? Yeah, you've defined it as well as anybody has, which is it's a completely artificially created market supported by the government through payments. And then that leads to, you know, and subsidized financing. And so that whole system props itself up where you can package the loans and move them. And so the reason that system was designed is nobody has to think about it and each lender can take no risk and everything can just be guaranteed by, you know, implicit or explicit government support. And then they can package those loans and sell them and move them. The second you get in regenerative agriculture, that's yeah. all gone. All goes away. It's, it's all gone. gone. So you're entirely on your own. So in terms of financing, impossible, dead, right? Is, all of that doesn't make sense unless you already have lots of assets and collateral, you know, not going to happen. And then where are you going to sell your product? Where are you going to process your product? Who's well, going to market yeah, it? And you wind up having to do it yourself. So then you're that, a commodity farmer that wants to change. He's got, the, let's say he does have the capital that he's managed to accidentally accumulate over time. And he does a little portion of it. So now he's got this distraction, but then he also has to market it himself because there's no channels for it. And that's the need for these regional networks to develop. And you have to build shared brands. You have to do value-added processing. So where we really see processing is the hub where the producers 
and the end sales final product can meet. And if they can all share in the ownership and value creation from that, they can get a value added product. There's, there's no question you need value added products to be successful in the world of regenerative agriculture. The benefit is you have a really high quality product that you can move through and tell a story. So the consumer wants that, but to deliver you know, a packaged product that has all the regulatory requirements and good marketing, good distribution is complicated. And so that, that's a lot of what we run into is you can have a real impact as a farm and you can be a great operation, but there's systematic issues in agriculture that are heavily tilted toward conventional. And you have to be willing to build the entire alternative system to make it work. And that's, that's basically the goal of our organization. You have to build an entire alternative system that can sustain itself on its own. Once it's been proven viable on its own without the support, then I think it can make a very compelling argument to either drop the supports in the other market or transfer them over over, over time. But the, dis, the market distortion is really the real problem of the government policies. And if it was based on real, you know, growing at a regional level and filling that initial regional demand for products, um, it would be a better system for everyone's benefit. But that just decouples from what it is today. So we understand the scale of, of the challenge. The way you describe the regulatory system is why at the end of the day, if you cut all the regulatory government support, it would be the diversified regional farm that that does thrive best, which is they did in COVID. And that's clear. So that's the more resilient model, but it just has to prove it all on its own unfairly while conventional ag has everything supported and, you know, thinks of itself as independent. And for me, it's not about a farmer or it's, it's about a systematic structure where if you're a producer and you're, and you don't want to be in that system, you have, you have almost no options. I mean, how are you going to do all of that on your own? And so it's about giving an alternative option and then having that option where they are a vested stakeholder and where they actually want to see it succeed. And so I, we're seeing regional networks of growers coming together to start to control the value chain and build a vertically integrated um, company. And I think that's what's going to be needed for success. So really, it's if you, if you look at it at high altitude, it's not that much different than what's happening today. Let's just pick on JBS and... Let's say they have 40 plants. Okay. The only difference is, is that each one of those 40 plants would be an individually owned operation. And then instead of all the profits going to shareholders or headquarters in Brazil, those profits are then looking at redistributing back to the farmers that are contributing to that plant. So Correct. And that's the main difference. That that's what that's the difference that you're able to create is yeah, the, the processing profits um, come back to the to the producer. And, and you able to keep it regionalized and more identified versus just, did this beef yeah. come from Argentina? Did it come from Australia or was this Canada? Who knows today? And it's not, yeah. And it's not just about, you know, big versus small. There's certainly a scale that makes sense at a watershed level. It's planning for the regional resources, making sure the practices align, and then having substantial enough infrastructure that you can move enough volume through to supply larger contracts and restaurant and, you know, bigger wholesale accounts. And so I think a lot of the argument is about different styles when it's more of just building a, a different system and, and putting those pieces together. And I don't know what the numbers is, but you mentioned the, the um, processing plant you just did in, in Montana. So in Montana, you know, cattle outnumber people anyway, like three times or 10 times or maybe a hundred times. I don't know. It's a bunch. And there's, there's no problem getting a freezer beef in Montana, right? You just go to your neighbor. But what's happened is because of that, uh, a Montana beef producer, their typical thing is to ship calves. So they send calves out to get finished somewhere else and they're not creating that value within their own state. So uh, now instead of shipping calves, they can finish the calves there in their own state and they ship the meat. So it allows for more of that economic opportunity to stay local. And then you're shipping a third as much of total weight across the, across the country too. And re-regionalize the system. So this project right. Montana was founded by three ranches that have been for over 150 years in a state and a very substantial organizations that all had their own local program, but they kind of maxed out the size of the small local program. The rest was going wholesale. And they said, we need, we need more infrastructure to access, you know, real regional scale with this. So they're building the processing facility. They bought an existing facility. They're upgrading USDA inspected. They're looking at building slaughter. They already opened a burger joint as kind of an outpost to showcase the product. And that's what I find really interesting. You've got, you know, traditional ranchers that are very conscious about the ecosystem that 
that meet all the all the values and I think are you know they've been stewards of that land for generations and and that's you know our company name is about that perspective but they're they're stuck in a commodity system because they have to sell their product and it goes at auction you know at normal markets and so they have to go full down the value chain to do it but now they have a regionally branded business that locals are excited to support where the money's staying in the system the producers have control employees have ownership as well and i think it's when you can weave all those benefits together and the economic ecological benefit are accruing to the actual people using the service and supporting it and that's where i think you have real resilience and longevity so it, it's not that you don't need some you know everything needs to be tiny it's just that those resources need to be for the benefit of the people in the watershed and the workers and if you can bring the alternative financing to do that i think you know part of us being out of the system is that we can design things differently and and that's how we're going about this is if the producers can have shared ownership control and different ways of going about it um, they will then supply their product through and if it can be operated well and employees have ownership and then they will process the product well and package it and market it and if that system works well in tandem that's success you know that that's going to be viability for for producers and the whole system around it so you mentioned you know, processing is definitely a, a key bottleneck or restriction to to market for the um for the farmer downstream from processing then um, you know larger scale processors are not going to have a storefront and sell it all themselves are they going to just re-enter the traditional channels then and and go to grocery stores wholesalers that kind of thing or do you have to do downstream projects and investments too for ship to home or uh, you know a different type of uh, channel for that uh, identity preservation or you have to go all the way yeah you have to go all the way to the end end customer and that's what they're doing uh, direct consumer subscription boxes for for this um they're also selling to local regional restaurants but it's about um they're also establishing their own you know outposts that kind of sell sell the product and market it so they're unique in that they're going fully vertically integrated but that system is going to be able to support a huge network of producers so i see a lot of cpg companies out there that have a really nice product and well-branded and well-marketed, if they can kind of connect with producer networks around processing, I think it's that shared combination of packaged, branded, marketed, and sold well, but also the production aligns in terms of the values and the processing. But that, that's a lot of different skill sets. And I think that's a real challenge. You know, the rancher and the like digital marketer, those are different. But I am finding a lot of the people with the urban skill sets are trying to go back to the land or more interested in leaving cities, rural areas, or very interested in where their food comes from. And so I'm, I'm seeing a lot of those gaps can be filled by the, the urban professionals who are actually tired of the corporate work and they know about branding, marketing, and those softer uh, things that are important to capture the margin. And that's the reality is you, you can't give away any margin. And where, where have you found... How have uh, farmers and, and those people that want to do that, how they've been best to get connected? Is there a resource? For I that? think that's a, that's a hard part for this project in Montana. They uh, were connected through a chef who was from there, but was in Portland. And he started doing the kind of F&B and they brought some other people. So they had. So I think around chefs is a place where there's a lot of connectivity around the beginning of value added products and creating those. Um, so I, I think we're hoping to build a lot of these facilities in them. They'll have, some will have commercial kitchens. And so I think it is, there need to be more meeting points for these types of buyers and sellers where, you know, somebody who's making a unique consumer product can source directly at a reasonable volume and the producers can showcase different products. So that a lot of this is around what, um, you know, trialing different things and seeing what works. And that, and that's why there's so little capital in the sector. It's, you can't just say, well, that worked well, we're going to do a lot of that people are still trying different models and and that's i'm very confident in the overall success of of the sector but within that there's going to be a lot of learning um and it may not be 49 different ones like you said it may be 25 of them and they're at you know a four state regional level and that's that i i really think in terms of watershed as the level of planning around those types of resources and the products can be similar in a watershed because it's it's you know there's a similar ecological framework Yes. And I think that's, uh, um, you can't just hit the copy machine button on this, uh, because the context is everything to regenerative agriculture. Well, it's everything to this scenario too. So speaking of the context, well, 
beef cattle prices are, are bad and getting worse uh, over time, but at least there's still beef producers independent, right? So when you look at the pork and especially the poultry industry, those are farmer buys the barn and hopes that he'll keep getting animals in the barn that, so that they pay him so much per animal to raise them so that when the barn is basically dilapidated and no good after 10 years, he's able to pay off that 10-year loan. Okay, that's the traditional commodity pork and poultry model in a oversimplified nutshell there. But how do you change that market? Because you, you the independent owners of sows or of breeders they're they're gone it's vertically integrated from the breeding program all the way to the package is and, there hope for that and, and what do you see happening in those those areas and that's my my great grandfather was one of the first birther chicken growers in the delmarva peninsula in caroline county in the in the 20s you know and then that business consolidated and now the delmarva peninsula is the biggest chicken producing region in the country but you know a lot of harmful ecological effects a lot of um, you know, ecological issues around the broader market. And then the argument is, well, it's providing protein. And so I, I think you have to build similar, like I said, the regional level where you have networks of growers with processing with end markets. I'm actually playing, you know, in my head, been working on projects where my, my mother's from Eastern Shore, Maryland, on rebuilding a regional poultry business with heritage birds and roadside stands of roast chicken and really showcasing the regional product in a very direct and tangible way similar to the, the oyster project I've been uh, working on. So I, I think you you can start to bring those markets back with the end consumer by really building alternative demand for, for different products. But the current market, you know, my, my uncle is a chicken farmer and from all the way back is they getting paid nothing. They're trapped in the system. They've got the capital investment infrastructure stuck and, and the margins just keep getting worse and worse and barely covering costs. And so they need to break out of that model, but they've got the stranded infrastructure. They have the financing already in place. And so we have been looking at some of those conversion models around bringing farmers to a different uh, way of, of producing, but you need market demand. So then you have to commit to buying their product and then you have to start marketing it. And so there's a reason those integrators have so much power, which is they've handled so many other parts of the business that they can squeeze the producer because they just put, pit them against each other you know, in a race to the bottom. And so getting back market control is what's needed, but you're competing against really tough companies that have their market share um, for a reason. And that's why it takes all those different skill sets and all that different expertise really to come together and work harmoniously to do it because it's, it's, a, it's a tall order. And unfortunately, the, the, the policy market still favors that type of agriculture. Like we said before, if you change the policy support, all of a sudden, the external costs hit and regenerative agriculture is competitive, but for now you're operating in a market where the, the rest of the market's heavily subsidized. Right. So it, you know, if you think processing capacity is a problem in, in beef and uh, pork and lamb, it's a huge problem in poultry. If you want to get in there, I mean, there's very few custom processing, so there's an opportunity there. Cool. If you can follow it all the way through uh, our podcast with Paul Grieve, the founder of Pasture Bird, was interesting. You know, they they were yeah. kind of doing it on their own, but then realized that the processing capacity just isn't there to grow the way we need to. So they, you know, had to had to make a partnership with Purdue, who had the processing capacity in order to make that happen. So while not ideal, but still getting birds on pasture. So I think you know that is definitely a step in the right direction. So yeah, anything your your group can do you know, to provide those kind of opportunities. Cause there's just not only you have the limited capital, like you said, you have the limited outlet for your, your product when you're, when you're done. So, yeah, and then those producers are producing at pretty high volume in the system. So moving that much alternative volume is, you know, you, you can't just go to the market and sell 10,000 chickens. So in, in reality, um, that's where the like relinking of these regional supply chains and the kind of urban demand driving directly. And, and I'm, I'm starting to see that that stuff building, but, but it's still at a fairly early level. And you're talking about transition of the agricultural system. I know a lot of people want it to happen in years, but this current system is, you know, a hundred years old, let's say. So it's, it's going to be decades of adjusting in the direction. But I think the, the market and consumer demand and consumer sentiment has shifted. The demand is there for the end products if they can be produced, but the production and processing and distribution and sale 
you know, all of that means a lot of reformulation. But if it's driven by a consumer that wants it and more and more policy and, and alternative capital towards it, I, that's where I, I think the chance for uh, viability is. And, and it has to happen from an ecological perspective. So at, at some point that becomes the reality. What about on uh, tree crops, uh, almonds, walnuts, pistachios? We get a chance to work with them in in, all, in California quite a bit. Uh, tomatoes, produce, you know, sweet corn, uh, cantaloupes, all those things are are dominated by by big players. What is the opportunity there for that to, um, again, get to that more smaller regional type market? And we've been working uh, with various nut crops, uh, hazelnuts in the Chest, uh, Hudson Valley. There's been a big movement with, for there. So the the challenge with uh, tree nuts is just the maturation of you know five to seven years to a reasonable crop. So every farm we're looking at is diversifying with other systems, you know, berries, chickens, uh, row crops. So you need to blend it, and that's you know portfolio diversification around different business line items. So it's how you know what's symbiotic and what can sustain itself over time. But in a similar conversation, you know, processing a mill for chestnuts to make flour to make other end uses. You, you need to get to some scale and, and some infrastructure to do it. So I, we, we thrive on, you know, alternative crops with a story where there's a producer who really is passionate about what they're growing. And then they can tell their story to help raise more financing to produce more of it. And then we also help, are helping them with figuring out processing or figuring out market access where we just connected a big buyer of fruits and vegetables, a kind of a, a fast casual group with a few of our farms to, to support local accounts because, for a producer, it's great to have a few wholesale accounts w- blended with direct sales. All direct sales is not realistic. You need a few wholesale, local, regional wholesale accounts blended with direct sales. And the more that those can be in balance, you know, then you have the really high margin direct as much as you have. And then the rest of the volume can be placed to give you the, the sustainability. So they're fairly fundamental ways of planning out the business. The reality today, though, is because it's such a distorted market, a lot of planning and conventional agriculture is about what's supported and what the market is. And so it's just that willingness to go outside the grain. Um, and we are, you know, we started working with a lot of small to mid-size, you know, a few acres to a few dozen acre farms. We're now providing financing to a, an over 3,000 acre farm in the Southwest that's producing regenerative organic cotton that has growing peppers. So we're, we're now able through, you know, financing and through technical assistance providers to support traditional growers in changing. And, and in reality, they have to be a huge part of the transition, but you also have to show them viability on the model and market access and where the revenue is going to support itself. So I, I like figuring those issues out and diving into each business. And the more we dive into more businesses, the more we understand the broader kind of sector structural challenges. And then that lets us think at a macro level of, okay, they're, they're all running into this issue with direct marketing, or they're all running into this issue with grant writing. And then we add that as a service. So we're just responding to, to the market and just solely focused on regenerative farmers. So that that's all, all we do every day and everything we design is custom for that. Well, what pops out to me in that conversation is you're, you're really a um, uh, tremendous level business consultant. Uh, but instead of costing you money, you're, you're giving them money. So you've got this all wrong, Dan, you should be, you, you should be charging them and, and then walking away with no liability, you know, or no, nothing uh, that you can come back on you as a normal business consultant would do. But instead you're, you're giving them help and develop all this thing and you're loaning them money too. So you're putting your money where your mouth is. That's it's a I, strange I, way I of doing great. it. Yeah. yeah. I prefer it to needs do it to be done. And that's where, so I began on the entrepreneur side of trying to do creative real estate development projects that didn't fit the box, you know, local tenants, historic restoration, smaller projects. So I've been on the, you know, non-traditional project that's the right project for the market, but isn't the normal cookie cutter project and how hard it is to raise financing for that. And so all the businesses I've built around these alternative financing platforms are how do you expand access to those entrepreneurs who have are doing really great work and need more resources and in this sector like and that's what these farmers are they're they're entrepreneurs and they are really creative about what they're trying to figure out how to make the business make sense and they've been doing it on a shoestring and finally if they can have the resources they need i find it very fulfilling our, our team finds it very fulfilling and it's everybody on our team really cares about this work and is really focused on making sure 
that what we're doing is is effective for the farmers and farmers also wouldn't wouldn't be working with us if it wasn't working for them they're a very discerning bunch and i think there's a lot of ag tech companies who just think they're going to sell product down on farmers and it uh, never seems to work out that way <laughs> oh man that's another whole podcast in itself that topic right there but uh no i you know it's it's interesting it's it's fun to be in a podcast with a fellow contrarian say let's go ahead and what's what's everybody doing okay let's do the opposite and see how hard we can make it happen but it's yeah. the right thing to do right so at the end of the day that's why you're doing what you're doing that's why i'm doing what we're doing is we're we're seeking to do the right thing and enabling other farmers to do the right thing i final question for you unless there's anything else you want to throw in that i i failed to cover but how do you define success for me when when you look back and and you've and you've made the impact that you want to make with steward and i'm sure there'll be more you seem like the serial entrepreneur type i, I can spot them right uh uh define that success and and what the what the world will look like because of the impact of what you and your team are doing there at steward yeah for me it began and ends with the chesapeake bay around like that. that's the watershed that matters to me that's my family's personal history and the restoration of that ecosystem and the species in it along with the health of the ecosystem and, and the population and seeing those rural communities actually thrive from the dollars staying within them. So I, I've seen, you know, where my mom grew up and the, the destruction of, you know, the lack of disinvestment in that region for decades and generations, and then everything being grown and planted, but ultimately the value not staying within the region and not staying locally. And so I just always envisioned what would an alternative system look like and how could you build those healthy ecosystems and how could you see the bottom of the bay, which when my mom grew up, you could drag a net along the bottom and a little basket and catch a crab. And now you can't even see anything. And so those are the types of tangible things that I think everyone in a very personal level has an ecosystem or has a region that's important to them that they that they want to see improved and restored. But, but from the actual like steward itself level, I want every farmer to have access to alternative means to produce regeneratively and be fully committed to that type of work. And be proud of the work they're doing and be able to sustain themselves financially to have independence too and not be reliant on other consolidators or financing or whatever it is. And then the downstream effects from that system are the healthier products for consumers, better ecological outcomes, you know, fewer use of natural resources, access. So that I, I find so many other positive societal, cultural, you know, ecological benefits come from this work that if we can just stop directing our resources elsewhere in a way that isn't accomplishing the net goal of what people want. It's accomplishing the net goal of a few large corporations. And if we can instead put the resources back towards producer control, employee control, and systems that are supporting consumers, you're going to have a much healthier planet and people. And, and the ecology, I think for me, is the beginning and the end of it, that this is one of the best methods to restore ecosystems and restore land while have it having it productively used and it should be applicable everywhere and it needs to be the dominant form of agriculture well said i i really appreciate uh, what you've identified as a need and how you're fulfilling it uh it looks it is a blue ocean that you're in and uh i i think that by looking at not trying to to be at the the high margin because you're the only one you know it's just let's get it done and and make the impact I think that's a uh, uh, really noble approach that you're doing. And I, I appreciate all the hard work. I can't imagine the what it's taken to get to where you are. And it's going to be a lot of fun to see where you go. So any of the farmers listening to this podcast today, if you've considered uh, trying and converting the portion of your acres, all your acres to regenerative practices, we, we encourage you to do that. That's what we're all about here at Ag Solutions Network. And, you know, reach out to... Stuart and, and Dan and his team and see how they could be a part of that discussion because it's going to it's going to cause you to grow beyond yourself and, and you have to be willing to do that in order to be able to make a bigger impact in in your area that you have been called to steward so anyway uh what's the best way to reach out and connect with you Dan and your team yeah, anybody can reach out. They can email me directly at dan at gosteward.com. That's our domain, G-O-S-T-E-W-A-R-D.com. We would love to speak with any farmer, early stages, late stages, doesn't matter where they are, and figure out what makes sense and how we can support 
in all the various capacities. And, and that's what we thrive on of taking these challenging situations or, or taking people's passion about this and giving them the chance to do it as they want to do it and not as the way they've been restricted in doing things. Excellent. Well, reach out to them, gosteward.com, check it out, see what they're all about. Uh, I, I think it's a novel approach and it's definitely a needed approach. So thank you for your time today. Thanks for sharing and thank you for the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you. All right. Take care. You know, when we say there's a lot of things to learn, well, I think this discussion checks off many of those boxes. We hope this conversation got you thinking about something new in the regenerative ag space that's helping growers move forward on adopting these practices. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on the links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening. 